1: Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to the Insomnia Project. Sit back, relax, and listen as we have a conversation about the mundane... One that will hopefully help you sort of drift off. Thank you for joining us. I'm Marco Timpano. I'm also in Florida. So for our listeners, you know what that means. I have an episode with my father-in-law, Daniel Barker. Dan, welcome to the Insomnia Project. Thank you. Now, Daniel, we um, our first episode that I recorded with you was about cymbals because you're a drummer. Mm-hmm. And you worked in a cymbal factory and you pretty much know all things cymbal. But now I'd like to talk about drums and specifically drummers
0: because you're a drummer. How did you get into drums? Well, for me it was pretty simple. Back around the early 60s this group came from England called Beatles. Oh, And all of a sudden you realize all these girls are going crazy over these four guys. And so... Being a young 12-year-old, a couple of kids in the neighborhood, we would just kind of pantomime their records and stand in front of a mirror trying to do the moves. So what drew me to it really was girls.
1: Oh, Um, So, so not wanting to emulate Ringo Starr, just wanting to emulate the popularity that the Beatles had.
0: Yeah, what I found out was that, you know, everybody had their favorite Beatles, so that was fine. Um, Ringo was kind of a guy that was quiet in his own way, even though he was a bit of a buffoon at times. But um, a lot of the girls really went for him because of his demeanor. You know, he was quiet and sullen face up there, etc. So there we go. Um, I just imitated the way he looked. I see. And how is he as a drummer? He's actually very underrated. Really? Yeah. I mean, he's a self-taught drummer. The thing with Ringo is that he has a style that I was able to emulate because he's left-handed, and he's playing a right-handed drum set. Oh, I see. So it's not as, let's say, natural for him to do a lot of the stuff other drummers do. But that gave him a bit of a boxy, um, percussive, very hard-driving beat. And that's what the Beatles liked about him, because he played so differently.
1: So he was a left-handed drummer playing a right-handed drum kit, is that correct? Right. Is it because there weren't left-handed drum kits at the time?
0: No, actually, all you've got to do is move a couple of the drums oh. to make it that okay. way. But the thing is, uh, such as in my case, I'm sure that he was taught to play like uh, the way most drummers played, so nobody gave it a thought that, that he was left-handed or right-handed or, or whatever. How did you learn? Well, for the most part, I was self-taught, okay. you know, emulating um, and copying what I heard on records, etc., Um it wasn't until I got out of the army that I, I took professional drum lessons. Oh, wow. Um, the the concept back there, uh, back in those days, was that uh, a lot of the songs are very simple. Mm-hmm. So, um, we used to call them three-chord progressions, and that just meant that they were very, actually very simple to play. So... Um, Once you get one or two or three beats down, then you could just about do everything that was out there.
1: And is that different today?
0: Oh, yeah, much different. Uh, Even back in the uh, 70s, things started changing. You started having groups, whether it was Chicago, Blood, Sweat & Tears, the horn groups, or the jazz uh, players were getting into a, a mixture of a rock jazz thing going on. In jazz, uh, what I mean by that for a drummer is that different time signatures were coming out. It wasn't just a 4-4 or 3-4, 2-4 time. Uh, You might be playing um, something that's, uh, say, more uh, uh, jazz-oriented. 5-4, as an example, Dave Brubeck. The drum was Joe Morello. And instead of playing in four, which meant four beats to the measure.
1: This is a, what a time signature is. Yeah.
0: Okay. He was playing five. And that just changed the whole thing around. So um, it, it it progressed musically. And I would imagine that the prevalence
1: of Latin music also influenced how drums were played uh, in traditional rock bands and whatnot.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, look at Woodstock and uh, uh, Santana getting right. up on stage. Um, all of a sudden, we saw, saw congas and bongos and other things. But if you go back, a little little historical thing here, back in the 50s and the 40s, uh, a very big influence was Cuban music. Right. And one of the best uh, aficionados of that was a bebop uh, Gentleman, who I got to know, um, uh, Dizzy Gillespie. Oh, and Dizzy Gillespie actually would come down to the factory because he had a certain uh, couple of symbols that he always wanted his guys to play. I mean, he very had very acute tastes and hearing, but he would show us the old uh, the old Cuban Latin rhythms. And these things were, you know, uh, talk about 5 over 4. I mean, you'd be talking 12 over 8 or 11 over 8, something that's so odd that you'd have to count it out in your head and not just listen to the music to try to fit it in. Um, But back in those days, and even today, if you go to Cuba, the band will be consist of three or four percussionists, conga player, bongo player. Uh, somebody on uh, maracas and and other uh, sundry uh, percussive in- instruments. So that influence was uh, really always there, but kind of got hidden after the Beatles and then resurfaced.
1: Wow, I'm. It's interesting because I've never heard you talk about Dizzy Gillespie and having met the person. Oh yeah. W- yeah. What was he like?
0: I'm very much a gentleman. Now, I. I got to know him because he would come to the factory and he would come two, three times a year uh, whenever he played up in the Boston area he would stop in and uh, he'd, he always had top-notch players with him so what we uh, would hang out at the factory and that would be something he liked to do because he could he could talk and uh, talk music because uh, we were all drummers, etc. and uh he was very much a gentleman. He um, was back in the '40s and '50s when he was coming up. He was uh, quite a, a player. He was one of the uh, the beginning of bebop. Was you know Dizzy led the charge there. And the thing is that he expanded beyond the jazz of the times to get into that whole thing. And he was quite a player. But when I got to know him. He had the puffy cheeks, sure. and his act was more of a, quote-unquote, shtick. Right. Because people expected to see his jowls go out as he played, et cetera. Right. And they really didn't understand, you know, some of the music that he uh, originated and how complicated it was to play. So he would just play to the crowd by that time as he was getting older. Um, but very kind man. Uh, grew up in a very tough era, uh, very racial, emotive. It was tough for him to go back home to South Carolina and and you know play. Right. You know, uh, being black and etc. But uh, but uh, no, he was he was quite a guy. If you good.
1: want to know more about the factory, we did an episode on symbols in season one, so I recommend that people go back and check out that episode. Uh, what are Who are some other uh, drummers that have a unique style or a style that you, you think is underrated?
0: Well, you know, going back a few years ago, you start at the top. Sure. I mean, Gene Krupa, Buddy Rich, Louis Belson. Louis Belson was married to uh, Pearl Bailey. Okay. Um, and you just go down the line of the big band drummers and the jazz drummers of the time. Um... A lot of them underrated. A lot of them, uh, I mean, just tremendous players. Um, Some of the ones that uh, uh, you you get into innovation and some of them go to what I would call extremes. I mean, there was one young man who went up through Berkeley and all of the jazz and all that. And uh, last time I saw him, He was playing with uh, twigs that he would cut off branches of trees rather than regular drumsticks. Okay. And the reason is, he said, well, it's so much more natural. (laughs) And you look at him and go, yeah, well, that's interesting. So he's out there cutting uh, limbs off trees for his sticks. Sure. But, you know, it it would progress, not just in one area, one way or one area, it would just kind of blossom. And certain drummers um, made their money because they could uh, imitate and emulate a lot of that. A friend of mine whose name was Bernard Purdy, Bernard was Aretha Franklin's drummer, Okay. Um, from New York, uh, did a lot of playing. Um And he's on a lot of recordings. Um, we used to have a joke in the industry, and it would show the Beatles in their uh, their, uh, their outfits there. Um, I'm trying to think of what the uh, name of the album was the the Sergeant Peppers. Thank you yeah. Sergeant Peppers in those outfits. And instead of Ringo, they supplanted uh, Bernard, who is black in the, the uniform. Because Bernard would say, "Yeah, I played on Beatles records," and people would ask, "Well, which ones?" And back in the day, the drummer usually was the first uh, uh, recording before the oh, other really? players, because they, they set the, set the right him, the beat. them and the bass player. Right. And so Bernard would go, "Yeah, well, I played quite a bit. I don't know, because you know, he, as he was very honest, he'd say." I don't know which ones made it on the album. I don't know which ones got canned. You know, that right. never happened. So would he be would he
1: be recording his drum beat before Ringo would lay his
0: on the album? No, it, it would be in lieu of Ringo sometimes. Okay. Um, if you go back to uh, Sgt. Pepper's and everything beyond, you'll notice that there's a lot of different rhythms in there. And... You know, Ringo's a, a very good drummer, right. but he had a certain way of playing that always sounded the same.
1: Right, okay.
0: And so they would bring in other people just to play around them. I see, I see. Yeah. I mean, even something, let me just point sure. out one of the early uh, records, Love Me Do. Uh, Ringo didn't play on that. Oh, really? No, no, a studio drummer did. And, uh, you know, it. it it wasn't that tough a beat to play sure but nonetheless you know no it wasn't ringo and of course uh, as the beatles progressed they brought in a lot of other musicians you know keyboard players and guitar players etc so
1: of course of course now you have a great story about a friend of yours who played with elvis oh yes tell us about that
0: well, the gentleman's name was Larry London, mm-hmm. and I met him back when I was playing in the uh, late 60s. Um, he came into the factory uh, to pick out a set of cymbals, and at that point, his career was, he actually started off as a singer, and when I knew him, he was a singer. Right? But he took up playing drums and uh, became one of the drummers of Motown Wow! back in the day. And from Motown in Detroit, uh, Chet Atkins um, came across him and said, uh, why don't you move to Nashville? We're doing quite a bit of recordings and I could use you. So he went to Nashville and he was one of the most recorded drummers, uh, not just in country, but uh, in, in a lot of areas. Um, he was a powerhouse guy, uh, drummer, uh, one of the best and he um he played on several cuts of journey and and other uh top groups right and uh he was uh uh what happened is that um uh, elvis uh always kept his 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 musicians for a long time and he had this uh uh Drummer, uh, excellent drummer. Uh, uh, and he was from L.A., and Elvis says, well, we're going to take a break here. And this was really before he got into the Las Vegas thing. Right. And so these people were all put on retainer, and back in those days, his, the drummer's retainer was $50,000 a year. Impressive. Just to be there. And uh, that was a lot of money back then. That would be like a quarter of a million today. Sure. But Elvis always took care of his people, and this guy's name was Ron Tut, and Ron um, went back to L.A. and started doing some recording business. Helen Reddy and um, a lot of the, a lot of the recordings of the time that came okay. out was Ron Tut, so he's doing okay here, day in and day out, playing on the recording. So after about a year and a half, I think it was. I don't think it was quite two years. Elvis says, "Okay, I'm ready. Let's. I want to get on the road, etc." And Ron says, "Well, Elvis, uh, I really don't want to give this up. I'm having a great time. I, I get to sleep in my own bed every night. And, you know, my wife cooks a meal. It's great." So says, "Okay, well, you know, we wish you the best, and there we go." So what happens is that they audition drummers. Well. Larry London gets the gig, so they're in rehearsal, ready to go out. And Ron Tutt calls office and says, "Man, I made a mistake." Oh. And Elvis, didn't you know, was put in that terrible position. And so he goes to Larry and he says, "Hey, man, you know, Ron wants to come back." And Larry, uh, always a gentleman, and I learned quite a bit uh, from him this way. He said, "Well." He's been with you for years, Elvis. I understand. And Elvis looked at Larry and said, "Man, I really appreciate that." He said, "I'm going to pay you for the whole tour." Right. <laughs> and, uh, and Larry said, "No, no, no. It, I don't want. I don't want the money. All I ask of you is, if anything ever happens to Ron, that I get the call first. And Elvis said, "I promise you." So what happens? They're out on tour. Ron. Tut's doing the gig, etc. And out of the blue, Larry gets a call. They were playing up in Detroit that night. And what happened in rehearsal is Ron Tut walked off the stage. He fell off the stage, oh. broke a leg. I believe it was a leg or an arm. Okay. I don't remember which. But he couldn't play. And so Larry gets a call, and Larry says, Yep, I'll be up there for the gig tonight. He had to book like three plane seats to put his drums oh. on the plane. <laughs> <laughs> they fly up to Detroit. He doesn't uh, doesn't get much of a rehearsal at all. Just gets right to the venue and off they go. And that was the last tour that uh, Elvis did. Wow! So Larry finished up that tour, and uh, he had a he had a lot of great stories. He, he once. Uh, was invited to Vidalia, Georgia. I remember this because it's the onion capital of Georgia. Okay, and he flies in on a small plane. They pick him up, and they've got the, a parade all set up with a high school band and everything to march through town. Okay. They put him on this this chair up on a flatbed. Okay. And he's waving to the crowd, <laughs> and nobody want to see Elvis's drummer. <laughs> What was he like as a person? I, he, was, he was great. Yeah. You know, I consider him. One of the nice things about my career is a lot of these guys became friends. They weren't right. just business colleagues or associates. Um, and Larry was one of those. Um, he, would, uh, he would go out of his way if you he needed help. Right. You know? uh, I'll tell you one other quick story sure. which I think is important is back in the days, um, it was Larry and about five other guys that were doing all the recording out of Nashville. And they get a call for this young artist, and so they go in the studio, and they're playing, and this this girl's singing, and the producer is saying, no, no, I want you to do this, I want you to do that. And the big thing at the time in country was Tammy Wynette. right? I want you to sing like Tammy Wynette. And she wasn't very comfortable doing that. And she was singing her own songs. And Larry, and the guys take a break, uh, smoke break outside, and they're talking, going, "Man, he's going to ruin her. She's got something. Right. You know, she's got some talent. But uh, this guy doesn't let up. So Larry is a big guy, like I mean, big, over three hundred pounds. Okay. And he goes up to him and says, you should back off, you know.' And and the it, it, producer being the producer said you know you mind your own business I know what I'm doing just get behind those dreams you do what I tell you blah 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 well Larry took enough guff through the years he looks at him and says you know what pal you're fired the guy looks at him and says you can't fire me he says oh yeah I can arrange it he says you're off this project he said me and the boys we're going to produce this and so They all go to Chet Atkins. Chet Atkins says, no, Larry doesn't want you. You're not there. (laughs) So, anyways, they put out the album. And as they say, the rest is history. Because the person doing the recording was Dolly Parton. Oh. Yeah. yeah, That's amazing. Yeah. And it's like Larry would have stories. He'd say, yeah, there I am shopping, you know, with my wife coming down the aisle. Who do I see but Dolly Parton pushing a cart?
1: This is in Nashville? This live. is
0: in Nashville. yeah. Oh, is a great little town. Mm-hmm. Uh, you lived way. there for a while. Yes, yes. And it's quite surprising some of the people <laughs> you run into. You know, um, I was in a little mall and a storekeeper looked at me and says, you see that uh, girl down there, down the aisle? And I look and there's like four women talking to me. Right. You know? I said, oh the blonde yeah the blonde I said you know who that is I said no very attractive you know sure but no I have no idea I said oh that's Carrie Underwood oh wow (laughs) so it's it's one of those funny little places uh, you go to symphony and next thing you know there's you know George Strait or somebody there uh, you know with you it's it's very personal little town sure
1: I remember being at one of the Christmas parties that you had at your place and there was some musicians there and just talking to them and they all had Grammys under their belts and they were all going to these music awards and whatnot and they were people who worked in the factory and people that you knew and and they were all musicians and very accomplished as well
0: yeah I mean uh The thing about Nashville is all types of uh, music going on, not just country. It's a lot of rock, a lot of symphonic music that's played there. Uh, Nashville's got a very, very nice symphony. Brand new hall. You know, they got flooded out years ago. But uh, nonetheless, uh, uh, quite a bit. And, of course, uh, gospel and and, and bluegrass. Yeah,
1: quite a bit of great music comes and has come from Nashville. yeah. What impresses you in a drummer that you listen to, even if you don't know the band and you're listening to a drummer?
0: My grandfather was a musician and he told me, gave me some sage advice once. He said, go and see all the musicians, all the drummers you can. He said, even if you're better than they are, you can pick up on certain things that will help you. And so I look for some different things. Uh, Drummers that play the same, you know, I'm not that impressed no matter how good they are, but uh, drummers that have something unique. uh, That is, you know, what I look at and I I admire. Um, And some of them have done very well. There's a guy named Steve Gadd, who I got to know, Many years ago, uh, when we were both young, and he became a a big session drummer out in New York, well schooled, etc. But he has this thing that we call playing behind the beat. Okay. It it's almost like he's dragging the beat on the music, but it, it it doesn't feel like the song's being dragged down or anything like that. Now, he's played uh, some with some very notable people. And uh, one of them was Paul Simon. Okay. And back in the day of Simon Uncle, but uh, Paul Simon when he was a solo act. And he's done quite a bit of his recordings. And if you listen to the drums, like 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover, right. that's a beat that Steve Gadd had been playing and practicing by himself. There was something to the, the count there that he wanted to get down. He had it in his head, but he, it took a long time for him to figure it out. And so when they were went in to do 50 Ways, uh, Steve said, gee, Paul, I, I think I got something that might fit in this song. And I, again, as they say, the rest is history. Right. And... Uh, but Steve um, is always on there. But it, it's it's a style. It's a, a something that has led the charge for a lot of others.
1: Well, this has been a quality episode, possibly one of the best. I want to thank my father-in-law, Daniel Barker, for being on this episode. Thank you.
0: So you had to come all the way to Florida.
1: That's right. And it's not even a question of wanting to come to Florida, but we have so many of our listeners saying, when are you going to do another episode with your father-in-law? So... Yeah, right. <laughs> I swear we get a ton of emails asking for you to be on our show. So that said, if you want to hear more with Daniel Barker, go to our Patreon page. So patreon.com slash Project. And there's more content there. So if you follow into one of our tiers, you'll see the content that you can get with Daniel Barker. Uh, until the next time that I'm in Florida... Look at this. I put my wife asleep. There you go. She's on the bed in the hotel room right now. Fastest asleep. <laughs> until next time, I want to thank you. As always, The Insomnia Project is uh, produced by Drumcast Productions. And this episode was recorded in Tampa, Florida. And this is Marco just popping back in here to let you know that this particular interview went longer than our 26 minutes. And Dan talks more about drummers and people he's known and uh, fun little stories about famous people in the music industry. If you want to hear that additional content, it is available on our Patreon page. So if you go to patreon.com, dot com slash the insomnia project that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the insomnia project you can get the second half or the continuation of this episode where dan goes into more detail i know there's a lot of fans of dan out there so if you're a dan fan go to our patreon page